Thank you, Brother Ed, and thank you, Brother Mike. What a lovely song. Yes, indeed, the story of Jesus, sweetest that ever was heard. If you would be turning in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. The book of Zechariah. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now and the prophets? Do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our, done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. Zechariah 1 verses 1 to 6. We have a just God. We have a compassionate God, a loving God. A God who will not be mocked. A God who must come first in our lives, in our considerations. It is his law that rules our hearts, not the opinions of men, but rather the dictates of God Almighty. The book of the prophet Zechariah is easy to find in the Old Testament. It is the penultimate book. The final book in the Old Testament is Malachi, and Zechariah comes just before it. Now, please remember that the words Old Testament are never used by Jesus and his apostles to describe a book in Scripture. And there's nothing wrong in us using that term. But if anyone had gone to Peter at the conclusion of his Pentecost sermon and asked, why did you keep quoting from the Old Testament? Then the response would have been a look of blank incomprehension on the apostles' face. Further attempts to explain your question would result in the penny dropping and Peter would have to have said to you, ah, I see, why was I quoting from the scriptures? We need to learn from Jesus and the apostles about the one single book of divine truth graciously given to us. For without a doubt, that's how the scripture itself would have us think of the Bible. Remember, the New Testament is concealed within the Old and the Old Testament is revealed and fulfilled within the new. And the Lord Jesus Christ, our merciful Savior, is central to the whole story. It's all about him, the divine risen Christ, setting the seal of his authority on the book as the sole and essential means of understanding him and his work and of preaching him to the world. There's a very interesting verse in which the Apostle Paul brackets as Scripture. Both the words of Jesus and also the writings of Moses in a quotation from Deuteronomy. In other words, Paul puts a New Testament passage on a par with the earlier inspired word of God. For Paul, they are both written by the Spirit of God. You will find that reference in his first letter to Timothy and chapter 5 and verse 18. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox. Do not muzzle the ox while it is teaching out, while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. 
God said this through Moses, and God said that through to his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Both sentences have all the authority behind them of the one true and living holy God. So here we are in Funiac Springs. And the word of the Lord is coming to us through Zechariah the prophet. Because in the year 520 BC, that is 2,533 years ago thereabouts, the eighth month of that year in which the emperor Darius of the Persian Empire, the most powerful man in the world, then anyway, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, verse 1. The word came in time and space history, not in Narnia or in the territory ruled over by the Lord of the Rings, but on this planet, in its history, by his word. It came to a man whose father was named Berechiah and whose grandfather was Iddo. That was the word from our God that came to Zechariah. This is a true account. It is not a story. And the Lord was angry with the prophet's forefathers. That was the word that came from the creator of the universe to Zechariah, his prophet, his man on earth. Have you ever noticed how God's prophets are terribly unpopular? How God's preachers, when they speak the truth, tend to get persecuted for it a lot. Well, if you want to be loved, just tell lies. Just tell the people what they want to hear. Or to shore up their ego or their pride. But if you want to please God, you preach the truth. And sometimes that means you're going to be thrown underneath the steamroller. The prophets of old knew this. But they had fire in their belly. And they preached the word of God. And what do we find in the New Testament when the word became flesh and dwelt among us? That there were things that men and women did that made God angry. Was he angry with Satan? Oh yes, he was very angry with Satan. Was he angry with Peter when that apostle tried to dissuade the Lord Jesus from going to the cross? Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. Mark 8, verse 33. Peter was being a tool of the devil in his opposition to Christ crucified. He was, was Christ angry with the Pharisees? Did gentle Jesus say to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and dish. And then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Matthew, 25, Matthew 23, verse 25 to 28. He was talking about those religious hypocrites, those who claim to teach God's word and yet stand in the way of God's salvation. Those who claim to honour and love God yet stand in the way of the truth being taught or the truth being preached. We're put here to preach the word of God. As a preacher, I am bound to preach the truth of God's word. 
And one day I will stand before Christ on judgment day. And I do not want to say to him, well, Lord, I didn't preach everything because somebody somewhere at some point might have been offended. If they're offended by God's word, take it to my boss. Take it to our boss, the King of kings and Lord of lords. There are a great many people who claim to serve the Lord Jesus and yet have by their actions shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. The Pharisees were not the Lord's favorite people. And was he nice? Did he say lovely liars? Kind people. He called them a generation of vipers. He was furious at what they had done. They lacked compassion. They lacked the love of God in their hearts. They were about themselves. Their team. But they weren't on God's team. They themselves didn't bother to enter into the kingdom but oh, how they prevented those entering who wanted to. Is it right to be angry at religious hypocrisy, at men who preach the old virtues but practice the old vices? Is it right to be angry at men who in the name of religion become suicide bombers and kill strangers and plunge families into grievous loss? Whose pride comes before what God commands? Of course it is. Your conscience will tell you to be indignant at such men. It is not a sin to be angry at cruelty, at murder and abuse. You'd be a wretch to be indifferent to such things and smile indulgently at such people saying, some people are hypocrites and some people are murderers, but who am I to judge? Be like your creator. Be like the righteous Lord Jesus Christ. Or again, think of this incident in the life of our blessed Lord, recorded in John chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So we made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? John chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. So how did he do that? Was there a little smile playing on the corners of his mouth? Was it with a little feminine pat that he gently pushed them to the exit? I believe not. Here is the wrath of the Lamb of God to crooks who had taken over his father's home and made it a place they could rip off people coming to make sacrifice for the guilt of their sins. So in the New Testament, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, you meet the same Lord who could become very angry with human depravity as the Lord who spoke to Zechariah. So why was the Lord very angry with the forefathers of Zechariah? Let me give you four illustrations of what caused God to be angry. Number one, when the people made and worshipped an idol, and an idol is anything that comes before God. It can be the money in your pocket. It can be your own pride. It can be what you want rather than what God wants. Anything at all can be an idol that comes before Almighty God. And he comes first and foremost in our lives. We give him all. We give him everything. 
It is the incident that we find in Exodus 32 when the people of Israel who had been liberated from Egypt by God turned their backs on him and made a cow made of gold. When God saw what was happening, he spoke to Moses on top of Mount Sinai and he said to him, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the image of a calf. Anything can be that golden calf, including your own face when you look at it in the mirror. We are to be humble servants of the Lord God, putting his wishes before our own in everything. For this is his church and it is run according to his work. And if it is not run according to his word, it is not his church. Now these people, they bowed down to their golden cow and they sacrificed it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Exodus 32, verses 7 to 11. Think of it. The long-suffering Lord, the God so full of compassion and mercy, had been so persistently mistreated that they made him angry. This is the one who persistently acted to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. They could just walk into this land, walk into houses and homes and vineyards already made by others. This was the Lord who provided them with food and water and protection, and yet the people at the first bout of difficulty turned away from him and took out their gold earrings, and he melted, and they melted them down and watched, and watched their goldsmiths make a model of a cow. Then they turned their backs on the living God and fell down and worshipped the idol. It would be like your father kicking your beloved mother out of the house and worshipping a robot who cooked and cleaned and washed for him. Would you be angry with him? Here in Exodus, the idol did absolutely nothing but reflect the light of the sun. God says, I was very angry with your forefathers. And we can understand why, can we not? The second illustration we read of is when the best king the people of Israel ever had took a man's wife into his bed and had her husband murdered. And I'm talking about David, who became a peeping Tom. It was not that he was drawn to Bathsheba as they worked and worshipped together and he admired her intelligence and spirituality and found her a very attractive woman. No, no. He saw her having a bath and he lusted after her body. Here is pornographic David. Here he sends for her and seduces her using his power as the greatest man in the nation. Here is abusive David. Then she gets pregnant. And he tries to cover his tracks by summoning Uriah, her husband, home from the war. But Uriah is such a man of integrity, he feels he cannot take privileges which his fellow officers did not have. Here is deceiving David. And so the king arranged for him to be abandoned in a skirmish and be killed by his enemy. Here we find a murderous David. And here, my friends, is the best king Israel ever had. Oh, it went down from David. 
The corruption of the best is the worst. Is an old saying and a very true one. You see, David was the best. He was intelligent and he was good looking. He was brave and forgiving to Saul who tried to kill him. He was a wise ruler, the anointed of God, and above all, a spiritually minded man. Did any in the nation love God as much as David did? Yet he behaved like this. He took a man's wife and had the man killed. And did he have an unhappy marriage after it? What could be his excuse for doing what he did? What the heart wants, the heart wants. David already had seven wives. He also had many concubines. The corruption of the best is the worst. So how did it work out for David and Bathsheba? Did he finally, after seven attempts to find true love, find it in Bathsheba? Let's turn to those painful words with which the first book of Kings opens for an answer. This is 1 Kings 1, verses 1 to 4. When King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his servant said to him, Let us look for a young virgin and attend to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, a Shulamite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no intimate relations with her. Who would have dreamed the affair with Bathsheba would have ended like this? In all of the infatuation of their first passion, they didn't think so. This is forever, they must have whispered one to another. His six wives weren't close to him. He had told her, but here at last was true love. But when he got old, not one of these wives were there to share his bed. They had to search the land for one suitable woman to keep him warm and be his companion. So who needs to heed this incident? All who love Psalm 23 which this man wrote. All who think they stand the strongest Christians in the congregation need to fear the corrupting power of infatuation. What did the family of Uriah think the parents who had given their brave son to fight for his country? What did they think of it? This was his adopted country. And he went and he fought and he was murdered by the king that he loved and served. Were they angry when they learned what had been done? Were they right to be angry? Is any other response acceptable? Is a shrug of indifference acceptable? Well, here is the best of the kings of Israel, and he acted like the worst of men. Then how did the other kings behave? If the best was a rotter. So you see how God was very angry with the forefathers of Zechariah. The corruption of the nation was not just among the shepherds and farmers and townspeople. It was locked into the very top ranks of society. Why was the Lord very angry with the people? They had turned against him. They had went after their own wishes, their own lusts, their own desires. I'm right, not you. I'll tell you how to feel God. And God was not happy with it. 
So was he right to be angry? I do believe so. Our third illustration, we talk about the wisest king Israel ever knew. And he took whatever woman he wanted. He did it big time. I'm referring to Mr. Cruel Contradiction himself. David's son, Solomon. So wise and yet so foolish. I'm referring to the record in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, which tells of King Solomon's, however, long, many, many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. It tells of all of these women, of what he had done. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations from which the Lord had told the Israelites not to marry. He told them not to marry them. They worshipped these fallen, these false gods. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and he went after them. This is why he was warned not to follow them. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely. You know, on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for the false god Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. The prophets that spoke out against it were persecuted. They were killed, they were murdered, they were told to keep stunned. The prophets that said, it's okay, they got on in life, they were praised but they did not please God. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. He built them temples for them to go and worship in. He had wandered that far away from the holy God. Just think of it. Every fortnight or so in his early life, Solomon was getting married. He'd over a thousand wives. The bridal wear business was doing very well in Jerusalem at that time. And God condescends to our human terminology by referring to Solomon's hundreds of relationships as relationships of love. Because that is how the world describes it. But it was sheer lust in this abusive and wise king. A man who had received a vision of the Lord and all of his glory twice. But visions will not keep you. Again, in a fourth illustration, when a king called Manasseh burned his own son to death. 1 Kings 21, verses 2 through 6. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Ashtiroth pole. As Ahab, king of Israel, had done, he bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists, he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. God is angry with those who cause it. This is the God you are going to answer to. Have you hurt people? Are there people you think of today and wonder where they are and how they have gotten on in life? And do you have regrets for the way you've treated them? Do you need forgiveness for the way you have acted? 
Have you found pardon for what you did wrong? For there is mercy, but God must be feared. Our God is a just God. Yes, indeed, there is a great blessing when we preach and teach the word. And by our example, bring people into the Lord's church. But we have to answer for those souls that fled because of us. To those souls that were turned off the truth of God's word. We need to be kind when we teach the word of God. Getting into an argument and calling them names isn't going to help them. If they're going to go to hell, calling them names and giving them a few nasty names isn't going to make it any worse for them. We need to let them know that you are loved by a loving and compassionate God that will put you first. So what did God say to this nation that had forsaken him? These are the precise words he told Zechariah to give to the people. And so to us today. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty. And I will return to you, declares the Lord Almighty. Verse 3. These are the exact words of the only God there is. The one who had been so angry with the people because of their sin. You see the repetition of the phrase. Declares the Lord Almighty. Says the Lord Almighty. In other words... You be sure that you know that these are not man's words, not made to please men, not edited to cause no offense. These are not Zachariah's words. These are the words of God. These are not the words of the preacher here this, this evening. God is saying this to those corrupt and sinful people. Return to me and I will return to you. Not I am sending another flood on you for your depravity. They need to turn to our Saviour, our Teacher, our Shepherd and our King. This is the grace of God. We have looked at his righteousness and justice and his anger with man's wicked actions. But now we discover that the same Lord is also a God of pity and mercy. And isn't that incredible? We sing a hymn which says, Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Here are Christians, and they are amazed at the grace of God. Today, most Christians take grace for granted. Of course, God's grace is amazing. So what? Let me show you how the divine grace is so amazing. Let me show you three examples of grace. Let's look at the parable of the laborers told by the Lord Jesus. It's harvest time and the landowner goes to the farm gate and he hires a group of men to work for him that day from 8 o'clock to 4 o'clock for $60. He hires a few more at midday and then at 3 o'clock a few layabouts say to one another, fancy an hour of work. Okay, they say. And then they go up and they go to their boss to see if they can do some work for him. He adds them to the laborers and so for one hour they work in the harvest. Then at four o'clock, all, all clock off of the day and each one is given the $60. The same wage whether they have worked eight hours or one. So the layabouts get the same money as those who have put in a full day's work. These men who worked all day in the sun complain. It's not fair that they get the same as us. But didn't you agree to work eight hours for $60? Yes. Then take your money and go. I don't have 
the right to do what I want with my own money, may I ask? Matthew 20, verse 15. He was not being mean to those who had worked all day. It was a fair wage. He was being generous to those who had only worked an hour. That is grace. The Gentiles had worshipped idols and followed philosophies of men for centuries. But when they trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, they went to the same glory that repentant Jews went to and had kept God's commandments throughout their lives. The converted Jews had done nothing perfectly. All they had done needed cleansing and forgiveness, even as everything the Gentiles had done needed mercy. Mercy alone takes us to glory. That is the grace of Almighty God. And in the parable of the prodigal son told by the Lord Jesus Christ, two brothers, one behaving as badly as a son can behave, compelling his father to give him his inheritance and immediately leaving home and spending the lot on wine, women and song. Now the other boy stays at home and helps his father on the farm. But then finally the wretched boy comes back. And the wretched boy is given exactly the same status as his elder brother. The son who had stayed home and being as good as gold. Working for his father faithfully year after year. Whom the father had taken for granted. The proper older boy is unimpressed with his father's grace to his wretched brother. He was thinking, like many of you, we would never do that. He would say, you can't be too careful. Look what once he did. He could do it again. Put him on probation. Let him come back, but as a laborer. And then if he provides himself over the next 10 years, proves himself over the next 10 years, he can be given a few privileges once again. It's nothing like that. The welcome is spontaneous and full-hearted. The Father's love is utterly sincere. The status of sonship is his from the moment his Father says. In Luke 15, 21 to verse 22 to verse 32. Put the ring of sonship on his finger and the sandals of sonship on his feet. That is grace in the account of Luke. That is grace. From now on. He eats with his father and lives with his father and receives all the blessings of having this man as his loving father. And he is grateful for it. He is grateful for being led into his father's house again. He's not getting back up to his old tricks, causing problems, wanting money to go off and do the things like celebrate wine, women and song to do it all over again. He is grateful and thankful to have the chance the salvation by Jesus Christ of the dying thief is yet another example. And how would you imagine a man once be behaved as if he confessed that being crucified was a fair punishment for his actions? You'd think he must have been a very wicked man indeed and done the most unspeakable things. You'd think he got what he deserved. Well, Zachariah's congregation heard his preaching that God would turn to those who turned to him. We are told that they said the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do in verse 6 of Zechariah. What men sow is what they shall also reap. The dying thief had sown murder and cruelty, and he reaped condemnation and crucifixion. We deserve what we're getting, but this man has done nothing wrong, he said. 
Then he called to Christ, asking him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke chapter 23, verse 42. He simply asked that the whole administration of his eternal kingdom, that Jesus, when Jesus came into that kingdom, he wouldn't forget him. This does in no way justify the false doctrine of the sinner's prayer. The Lord Jesus Christ, being God, had absolutely every right and authority to forgive sins without people even being baptized. We don't know if he was or not. But after the new covenant came in, the only way of being saved was being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. What new faith this wicked man had in Christ. At the eleventh hour, if only he had seen this years earlier, And what did Jesus say? Did he tell him that he must go first into purgatory for a thousand years and have all his guilt and shame purged out of him and that Jesus would encourage masses and prayers for his soul to be said for him, which would shorten his time in a place called purgatory? No, he did not. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, verse 43. After his years of terrible evils, he simply came to see his own wickedness, his own shame. And in that shame, he called on King Jesus to show pity on him. And the answer was not, I won't forget you. No. You will this day be welcomed by me into paradise. It all happened that day. He breakfasted in prison that morning. He hung with Jesus on the cross that noon. And that night, he was with Jesus in paradise. It all happened that day. He was condemned by man that morning. He was punished by man that midday. And that night he was received into glory by the Lord Jesus Christ. That where I am, there you will be also. John 15 verse 3. That is grace abounding to the chief of sinners. That is amazing grace. From the guttermost to the uttermost. And all through the Lord Jesus Christ's great achievements. He pleads that we will not reject the gospel call, as many do. Going back to our text in Zechariah in verse 4, we read, But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. And they are all simply statistics of today of non-believers and non-Christians and the non-repentant and the non-children of God. They went on defying and ignoring the living God while they existed. But God asks, where are they now? Where are the holy men now? Who lives forever? None. It is appointed unto men once to die, the Bible tells us. And though men and women run from these words all their lives, these words always win. These words of judgment overtook every generation before us. The message of grace from the Bible is that you are being told of the true nature of God. Of God as a just God. As a sin-hating God. And also of a God of grace. He loves the sinner. He hates the sin for what it does to the sinner. It separates them from him. This is a God of grace who pardons and forgives the worst of men. Even at the very end of their life. Then he clothes some with the righteousness of God and takes them to heaven at the end, saved by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Here are the themes of the book of the preaching of Zechariah. The holiness and justice of our sin-hating God, and yet his marvellous grace to those who turn from their evil ways and their evil practices. It is a wonderful thing to realise that you have an evil way. Because then you can cheer up. Because there is grace available to you. You are blaming your problems on your intelligence or on your personality or on the bad influence of your family or bad company. But cheer up. You can do nothing about those things. You can try leaving them. But unless you turn to Christ, you will be lost. You must turn from them and fall into the arms of our glorious King, the Lord Jesus. Then what the Lord says through Zechariah the prophet, he will do for you. That is why he brought you to read this command, to hear this command. And this promise from Almighty God. Return to me and I will return to you. I can't think of a more wonderful discovery today than of a father, his face beaming with love, running toward you, his arms outstretched to welcome you, determined that he will never let you go again, welcoming you home to his family, to his father's love. I will return to you. And he will return to you, Christians, if you've walked away. If you followed after your own way. Don't delay. Return today while yet you may. It's the movement of your heart from unbelief to trusting in Jesus Christ totally and following him and applying his word to your hearts, to your minds. It is receiving his grace because you know that Jesus lived for you and he died for you. He's returning for you. Return to the heavenly father. Return to him. If you are a Christian this evening and you have wandered away from the Christ-likeness of a heart of love, compassion, if you've wandered after evil ways or forgotten the nature of God that we are to show, it's not too late. If you've taken God's salvation for granted and went on sinning, it's not too late while yet you live. And if you're not a Christian, it's not too late to listen to the command of Christ to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you obey Christ tonight? He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. These words are highly unpopular in the world. Many a preacher is condemned for saying them. But these aren't the preacher's words. These are the words of the greatest preacher that has ever lived. Of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He laid his life down for me. What kind of a follower of his would I be if I would not do the same? He comes first in all things. It is a worthy life. He is a worthy God. He is the only one worth living for and dying for. And he has died for us. Let us praise him and follow his example all the days of our lives. If you're not a Christian, become one this evening while yet you may. So stand and sing. Thank you. There's a great
coming, a great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by. With the 